Let me pray as we get into our passage this morning. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that you speak, uh, that you speak through your word in the scriptures, you speak through this book of Ruth. And so, Lord, I pray that I might be faithful to your word now. I pray your spirit might be amongst us and in us and guiding us and teaching us. Amen. Over the last month or so, I've been helping my daughter Lucy buy a car. And I can say that we have success. She has a little Forester, 2004. Its name is Harley. <laughs> but whenever I'm, you know, looking to purchase a car, as I go through this process, I always ask one question, and that is, why are you selling this car? And usually, you suspect that the answer is not completely honest, but at very least, you're trying to glean their motivation. Now, what's the motivation behind this decision? Is it an upgrade motivation, in which case you're reasonably hopeful about the car, or is it a blown head gasket, in which case you should be a little more suspicious? Uh, One of the enduring mysteries of the book of Ruth is the motivation for including it in the Jewish scriptures in the first place. I mean, it's a fantastic story, don't get me wrong. Uh, And it's certainly a stark counter-narrative to the world of that day and to the period of the Judges. So the book of Judges is all about people doing what is right in their own eyes. And certainly, particularly as you get to the last couple of chapters, it's quite a disturbing portrayal of what people will do for the sake of preserving the family and the family line. But this account was written two generations after the events of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. And so most likely it was when David was either the king of Judah or king of united Israel. Uh, So it is a story about character and courtship, uh, but most likely from a human perspective, the motivation for writing it was political, uh, because it speaks to the legitimacy of David's kingship. And so that makes this genealogy on the end, rather than just kind of an attack on, uh, to actually be an integral part of this whole story. Uh, But it also testifies to God's guiding hand in all of this, that he's working through these incredibly humble events of a, a girl meeting a guy in a barley field. And all of that is going to lead to a king of Israel, and all of that is going to lead to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. But for this morning, we pick up this account with uh, the girl getting the good guy and the good guy getting the girl, and they have a boy. And so the women of the town are very excited uh, for... Well, they're excited for, for Ruth, I'm sure, but they all gather around Naomi. Uh, And they say, the women say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The, The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him So last time the women gathered around Naomi was when she'd returned to town and Naomi at the time said, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And of course, now she's sitting back in her hometown with this child who's going to continue the family name. And no pressure, but this child is now the first in line as her guardian redeemer. He gives her renewed life and purpose and honour. He is the one who's going to make sure that she is provided for in her old age. And I suspect this is one scene that particularly resonates for the grandparents here. You know, so, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to sort of see your kids, you know, grow up and mature and move out. And, you know, as they're sort of shuffling out their bed, you're shuffling in a new sewing room or a man cave. And, you know, I, I can see how that could be an exciting moment. But, but it's also a moment where your role in their life has, has vastly changed. They're, they're no longer dependent on you. You know, they're moving on to be independent. But, of course, then comes along grandchildren, and with that, a renewed role, uh, and perhaps uh, potentially a renewed connection, uh, which might be difficult to celebrate after they've been in your home for the last six hours wreaking havoc. Uh, but deep, deep, perhaps deep, down inside, uh, there is a joy and a thankfulness and kind of a renewal that, that comes with these children. So Naomi is at the centre of you know, all the attention in this moment, uh, but it is still about Ruth. So verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Apparently, uh, seven sons was the ultimate expression of God's blessing on a family back then. So that was pretty good. But one Ruth is better. Uh, so she has honoured her mother-in-law in, in a way that goes you know, way beyond any sense of obligation or duty. You know, so not only has she shown love and devotion when things looked hopeless, but now, through this son Obed, she will restore Naomi's family line. You know, so much so that these women can say Naomi has a son. Uh, because in terms of security and family line and family honour, he will achieve for her everything that a son would achieve and even more. So it's an awesome story in its own right. But the genealogy again gives us a bigger agenda. They named him Obed. That's not the exciting bit. The father of Jesse, also not that exciting. The father of David. And that really is exciting because David will become one of, or the great king of Israel. Yeah, so up until this point, the focus has been on how Boaz is going to restore the family line of Elimelech. And this marriage is going to restore family honour and family land. Uh, but now this genealogy shifts. So obviously with a child, you've got now two families involved. And so the attention shifts from... Elimelech's family and restoring Elimelech's family to the line of Boaz. Yeah, I don't envy anyone in politics. I think particularly now with, you know, 24-hour news cycles and, you know, social media where you can always find a critic on absolutely anything, uh, it is a thankless and brutal business. Uh, on the bright side, uh, at least we don't tend to murder our politicians these days uh, or publicly behead them. So I think that's a step up on perhaps other periods of history. 
but it is a brutal world. And in politics, there are, em there are enemies you know, around you. Uh, for David, uh, the, the, there was the nations around them, and in particular, the Philistines. But there are also enemies from within. Uh, people who want to undermine the leader, and in the historical context of Ruth, undermine the, his the legitimacy of David's kingship. And certainly in Australia, we, we've had a bit of experience with this lately. You know, Labor started off uh, with, you know, uh, Rudd and, and, and Gillard. Uh, and then you think that would be the end of it, but then they tried to swap again. And then even the Liberals got involved. So we kind of get internal political machinations. And certainly as a foreigner, Ruth looks like a blemish on the family line. Uh, because the law was very clear. When it comes to the nations around them, God says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So as far as the argument goes, they look at David and they go, how can David be God's anointed king when this, his, his, grand, his grandmother is actually a foreigner? She isn't even an Israelite. And this story sort of counters that criticism by showing, you know, and celebrating Ruth as a Moabite, but also a woman of exceptional character and someone who has embraced the Lord. She has devoted herself to the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is the sort of woman that other women want to be like and a woman who puts most men to shame. And certainly as foreigners, uh, as we are thankful to be part of God's family, it's encouraging and, and you know, good to see that we were always part of God's big story. You know, so right back in Genesis, God declares to Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed through you. And so we are benefactors of God's faithfulness to that promise. And we look forward to an end, you know, as the Apostle John describes, of a future where this is how he describes the end of all things. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so as foreigners, that is something that we get to share in because of God's grace to us. And we see just a little hint of that in the life of Ruth. And so this genealogy works on lots of levels. Uh, for starters, Perez, so right back at the beginning of the genealogy, was born out of a guardian-redeemer situation between Judah and Tamar. And if you thought, you know, the whole account of Ruth you know, uncovering Boaz's feet, if you felt that was just a bit racy, uh, then the story of Judah and, and Tamar is, you know, like 18 plus kind of limited edition kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, God works through all the messiness of humanity. Uh, and Boaz in this genealogy sits at number seven on the list. So genealogies often don't cover every single generation, although this one's relatively short. But by putting Boaz at number seven, it places him in the position of honour. Uh, so he is the main player that God is using in this part of the story. Now, I don't often use jewellery analogies, but here goes. Uh, if yeah, you can imagine this genealogy kind of like a, a pearl necklace, then Boaz and Ruth are like that clasp that, that bring these generations together. 
And it's very practical in terms of God's plan, uh, but it's also a good story in its own right. And so through all the trials and tragedies of this story, we see that God is faithful. So back in chapter 2, Boaz says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you've come to take refuge. And so in this genealogy, we see how God has been faithful to that prayer and he's blessed Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in this lifetime, but the nation of Israel for generations to come. Uh, So this is a redemption story that fits within the bigger story of Israel. But of course, this family line doesn't end with David. Now, as we see with the genealogy of Matthew, I was going to read it line for line, but it just keeps going. Or maybe it doesn't go at all. Oh, my, one more. Here we go. Oh, that would have been fun to read. Uh, but it's quite a list. Uh, but let me read the Luke version, or a, a Luke version, which is sort of a little more abridged. Uh, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. So in the Old Testament, we see God's people living in God's land, and he has provided uh, a place for them under his rule. Uh, But it was always a bit of a foreshadowing of something better. Uh, It was the earthbound version, uh, something more finite, but it it looks forward to something infinite. Uh, So the Old Testament in Israel are kind of like a model building. Yeah, you go, that's a nice model and all, but it's nothing compared to the real thing. And so God's provision of a land of milk and honey and blessing help us to better understand God's plan for our eternal future. Uh, The Old Testament sacrificial system where a lamb was killed as a substitute for our sin helps us to understand what Christ will do for us on the cross as the Lamb of God. And this cultural practice of a guardian redeemer who's willing to pay the price to redeem the family and restore the family honour help us to understand Jesus as our redeemer. Uh, He is the one who will pay the price to redeem us from the consequences of our sin and to restore our humanity and dignity and honour before God. And so it's through Jesus that will be included in God's family and be part of God's family line and become co-heirs to an internal inheritance. But I think often when it comes to redemption, even though it's for everyone, we have very different reactions, don't we? So for some, uh, we, we like the idea of redemption, but it only works if we feel that we need something to be redeemed from something. If we don't perceive ourselves to have a problem, if we don't think we've done anything wrong, then the idea of God redeeming us just seems all a little offensive. How dare you say that, you know, I've been doing something wrong? I think for others, you know, we can acknowledge that we aren't, aren't necessarily great people, 
you know, even you know, by worldly standards, we're not particularly good. But we just don't think there's going to be any future consequence to that. We don't think there's ever going to be any sense of future accountability. Uh, and so we might be you know, committed to self-improvement and wanting to sort of align ourselves you know, morally, internally, but there is no sense of bigger picture. And so it might be, let's be good people because it's good to be good, or it might be, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow I die. And of course, as Christians, we recognise that we are profoundly flawed. You know, left to our own devices, we gravitate towards selfishness and greed and envy and lust and laziness. And even though we hate those things about ourselves, we keep doing them. As the saying goes, like a dog returning to its vomit. But even though we dishonour God, we are thankful that God wants to redeem us. But it does mean that redemption can't come from within because we can't simply undo our sin and we can't simply pay the price for our own sin any more than a widow who has no money and no sons can pay the price for her land. And so we're completely dependent on God to intervene. In the words of Paul to Titus, we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So when we're redeemed by Christ, I think at least five things happen. Uh, We are given God's spirit to help us to recognise sin in the first place. Uh, We start to see that sin destroys And it doesn't deliver on what it promises in terms of perhaps happiness and freedom. We start to see that good is good. It's much harder up front, but in the end it works better. It's a bit like exercise. I don't think anyone, particularly in the middle of winter, is begging to get outside and go for a run. In the moment it just seems insurmountable and all too hard. But of course, once you've done it, uh, you start to see the benefits of it. You know, and you start to see, you know, it's, it's you know, further ahead, you feel healthier, you feel fitter, you know, life is good. Uh, and I think that's the same when it comes to our, our relationship with God. Often it looks harder. You read God's word and you go, man, that is going to be tough. But as you, as you listen to God, as you actually trust him, we start to see that it works. I think number four is we know that even when we fail, there is an offer of forgiveness. You know, often when we fail, we, we just want to give up. You know, this isn't working, I'm rubbish, I can't do it. You know, I've done so much damage to this relationship that I can't even begin to imagine that he would ever take me back. Uh, but when it comes to God, he redeemed us in the first place and he doesn't give up on us. You know, our relationship with God isn't like a uni course, you know, where if you fail the assignments, that's it. It doesn't matter how well you do in the exam. Uh, God perseveres with us. Uh, he forgives us. And when we fail, he forgives us again. And so that gives us the hope that when we do repent, when we're honestly sorry for it, to keep on going. And I think number five, we look forward to a future when we don't need to struggle anymore. When we don't have to struggle with our sinful desires, when we don't need to struggle with the brokenness of this world. 
uh, when our redemption will be made complete. Now, as we come to the end of this story, uh, it is a lovely story uh, about courtship and character and what, what God, the godliness works. Uh, but it's also a story about faithfulness, uh, that God is faithful, that he works through the messiness of life, that in the moment, it's almost impossible perhaps to see that God has a purpose and plan for things. Uh, but we see that if God has been faithful in the past, then we can be equally confident that he'll be faithful in the future. And so this story works towards God placing his king in Israel, and that works to the bigger story of God placing his king at his right hand. And that's the king that we follow as Lord and Saviour. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you that you are faithful to your plans, uh, even though you allow this world to be uh, exceptionally messy at times, uh, that you are working out all things. And Lord, we thank you that you offer to redeem us through your son, that we might have life. And so, Lord, I pray that we accept that offer. We recognise that we see it and we see your goodness to us. Amen.